Welcome to the Novice No Longer Podcast, Episode 10. Coming up on today's show, how do you know when you're ready to take on investors? We get into the nitty gritty of building a business that will benefit from taking on investors and talk about how to pitch your company. I've got Inas Ibrahim, a talented startup advisor on the show. But first, I want to tell you about a podcast sponsor. Now, I was hesitant to take on a sponsor, but this person is actually my personal developer that I've used to develop two of my applications so far, both for iOS and for the Mac. The sponsor is Planet 1107 App Development, and they're based in Croatia, and they build mobile and desktop apps. So if you have an idea for a mobile application but don't know where to turn, you can contact Planet 1107. They accept clients that have a wide range of skill levels and can take on projects even if you haven't built the full wireframe yet. You you literally say, this is my idea, and they will put it together. They're based in Croatia, but they speak perfect English. Now, with this project, you own all of the source code, which is important. They don't retain any of that ownership, and they will even submit it to the App Store for you, and there is zero charge for fixing any bugs because they really stand behind their product. Now, I've worked out a deal for all of my listeners. If you are interested in working with Planet 1107, they will give you 10% off your entire order just for mentioning the Novice No Longer podcast. And they only charge $40 an hour for development, which is really, really amazing. So I highly recommend it. Check out planet1107.net for a free quote. And like I said, don't forget to mention the Novice No Longer podcast for 10% off your app. And Welcome to the show. Ines, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Of course. So can you tell the audience a little bit about uh, what you do? You're a startup advisor and you, you help people with pitches, but what's a little bit of your background? Uh, well, you're correct. I work with startups and small companies, and I help them with, uh, yes, pitches, but more than that, the business aspect of their business. So uh, I often um, compare myself to the left brain, to the right brain of the uh, talented uh, entrepreneur. Uh, and my background, actually, what, what allowed me to do this is a very diverse background. I started my career in programming and I spent quite some time uh, building systems uh, using Java and SQL and uh, and I really enjoyed that before I decided that I want to explore the business side of things. And that's when I got my MBA in finance and entrepreneurship, worked a little bit in finance and then decided that I want to put all my skills to help or to work for me. And that's when I started working with startups for about two and a half years now. Okay, so a lot of the startups that you're getting involved with will have uh, an idea or a product and they're kind of chugging along, but they don't really have the business, like the financials and numbers and that kind of stuff down. And that's where you come in and you kind of help them get that settled. Some of them, um, they need more business help than others. But yes, my, my focus with the startups is on how to turn that great idea into a functioning business. Awesome. So how did you get into uh, consulting with startups a couple of years ago? 
Uh, I actually was, um, uh, I had my full-time job uh, in finance in one of the big uh, companies. And um, in that company, I was also responsible for what we call an affinity group. Um, you can compare it in terms of colleges to student club. Um, and in my pursuit to actually have that group function, have some money coming in, um, target the audience. I was asked by one of the directors to write a piece in the finance newsletter that we have. And I wrote that piece and I remember starting it by saying, my day job is in finance, but my other job in the company is as a startup CEO. And I drew all the parallels between what I'm doing for this group to grow it and to get it known, to have some events for it, to see how we can generate money to support all that. And it dawned on me that actually I'm enjoying doing that a lot more than uh, just doing the finance part of it. And um, startup in New York here, startups in general, the startup movement, if I may call it, was really, really uh, flourishing, and I didn't want to miss that. So I decided that I'm actually going to use all my past skills and my passion to work with startups and uh, lift the finance job, and I still do a lot of financial analysis. I live to the stereotype um, and with, with my startups, but that's when I started to think that really I, I need to make the switch. Mm-hmm. Well, I know a lot of startups... Uh finance and kind of the business side of things are the last things on their mind because a lot of times if they are from a developer background or from some sort of other background like that, they'll, they'll, their experience will be in building the products, not in building a business, which if you're trying to use your technology to build a company, you need to have experience and you need to do both. Absolutely. And if you remember, I was a developer myself. So I sympathize completely with how some of the developers think and how when you're trying to create something, that's your baby, and all you're thinking is about how to make it the most beautiful, efficient, uh, and functioning one with bills and whistles, but sometimes that's not the right path to to take in order to create a business. So you need that kind of uh, external goggles uh, to tell you, you know what? No, this is great, but this is how you can turn this great project that you have or great product that you have into a business because isn't that what any entrepreneur really wants? Mm-hmm. So that kind of leads me to uh, a question that I've had for uh, a long time that I, it's hard to find an answer to, and that is how do you know when you have a product or a project versus something that can be grown into a business? Like, how do you know that you're ready to take that next step with whatever you're working on? That, and, and that's actually something that a lot of people get um, confused and sometimes uh, forms a hurdle for their movement forward. Um, but the way I look at it is, okay, how can you actually sustain? Like you have, so the difference, we always say the difference between an app and, and a business. Um, how can you sustain that going forward? Is there any potential for growth? And how that growth looks, is it only in one direction by acquiring more people? Or you could actually provide some sort of a sustainable business that will continue to generate money, that will continue to attract people 
uh, and they're not mutually exclusive, believe me, uh, and, uh, and actually take it to there. If, if the answer is no, or then we need to look at whatever that we're developing in a, from a different perspective, that's all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you're just creating a, a single app and you're selling it for $0.99 cents or $1.99 with no in-app purchases or nothing else like that, then it's more of just a product. And the company would be as if you continue to make products like that, but the, the app itself is not a company. No, but, but that is absolutely correct and a very good example, but we can't. Ignore that, you know, it might generate a lot of money and a lot of users to the creator of that app or game. Um, but then you, you want to just fast forward in your mind three to five years ahead and, because people taste change, uh, environment around you change. And what, while this app might be attractive right now, will it be after people have used it over and over again? Uh, will it continue to generate any value? Mm-hmm. Or can you actually have some other related products based on the same business idea? And I'm, I'm saying that between quote, uh, because it's really the important aspect around the same business idea. Can you generate similar products? And then you can say, okay, I can sustain a business from this. Mm-hmm. And you talking about that just makes me think of how Apple has set up the app store because before the app store you could release a, an app or a product and then sell an update and so if you're a previous customer you could just buy uh, a discounted version of the app and that was how you were able to sustain it but with the app store and all of the free app updates you kind of have to sell a completely new version and if you already have previous users you can't offer them a discount it's un- it's difficult to keep them on so it's a whole new dynamic because every time you release an update for your app what you're doing is you're creating a whole new product which has inherent risk absolutely yes so you took it from that single-minded into a more of a whole business with a whole ecosystem surrounding it mm-hmm. so that's 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 a very good way to also think about it it's not a one single activity, but you have like related ecosystem that makes this project or product or idea move forward. Mm-hmm. So that kind of brings me on to the topic of investors, because a lot of times when you're growing a business or a lot of businesses will take on uh, either angel investors, venture capitalists, all these different terms are basically taking money in exchange for equity in their company. How do you know that you're ready for an investor? Um, I like that you said uh, angels or venture capitalists. They're not mutually exclusive again. Uh, But the the way it works is, um, you know, the best thing is to start with yourself. Invest in your company to get it to a place where actually it would be attractive for other people. When? When you need to grow. That is, that is like very, very important. If you're lucky enough and you can afford financing your business yourself without actually, as you said, giving a piece of it to someone else, then I want you to stay on that path as long as it can take you in the shortest amount of time possible. Mm-hmm. Um, then there are the two paths that, for the angel and the venture capitalist. Um, and it usually depends on how much money are you raising and, um, 
which stage of your project or product are you in right now? Um, usually, if we want to draw some differences between the two, uh, it most has to do with the market size, the potential market size for your product right now. Uh, so you start with approaching angel investors, people that really believe not only in your idea, but in you and the fact that you are able to prove to them that you can take this business further, make it into a bigger um, opportunity than it is right now. Um, and then when you're approaching for your growth, when you really need to grow, you need to be approaching the venture capitalist at the time. And there's a lot of things that goes into approaching the right investor, whether it's a venture capitalist or, or angel, but it, the most mistakes I see entrepreneurs doing is by not targeting which investors to go to. So they waste their own time and effort and they waste the time of the investors as well. That's it. They said yes. Um, What's so the difference talking, between them? Oh, absolutely. Angel investor might be somebody who has his own money. And instead of putting that money, for example, in the stock market, he would like to invest that money in startups for mostly personal reason. They believe uh, that they need to give back. They were entrepreneurs themselves that they need to give back uh, to upcoming entrepreneurs. So they invest their own money into these new companies or startups that are coming in. And mostly they do it not only, majority of them, they, do, they don't do it because of the money aspect or the investment aspect of it, as much as they do it because they wanna uh, stay close to the technology, for example, work as mentors, provide their experiences, and it's a much more closer relationship between the angel and the, the startup. Now, mind you, there are some angels that they just invest money into a company. But I see that if you're, if you're asking for the motives of most angels and why they do this, they do it because they want to be involved, they want to give back, they want to be connected to that community in, in, in some sense. And because they came across some money. For example, most of the big companies win the IPO. The first thing that you see in, uh, in the news um, is, oh, look how many new angel investors emerged from that, from that kind of IPO when people became rich from, um, uh, from their early stake in the company. Well, venture capitalists, and I know people sometimes say, oh, venture capitalists, they don't invest their money. Well, that is true. Actually, a, vin a venture capitalist is, a is actually investing a pool of money of other people that trusted them to invest that money. And it's a more rigid um, process, unlike angel investing. Angel investing, even if you are, you have, you have to have your own metrics of how to to pick your companies. But with venture capitalists, there is a, a more rigid, what can I say, a more rigid process around it. And no, not all the time you say that they only invest other people's money. Sometimes they have their own money in stake. Some, when you're creating a fund, requires that you have your own money also in the pool. But they're doing this professionally. So they have a big fund and they have to meet some uh, goals 
that they agreed upon with the limited partners, the people that gave them money to invest to begin with. And they have to adhere to that and they have to adhere to certain returns. That's why you hear a lot um, when you go to a venture capitalist asking for money, the, the market is not big enough for us. That doesn't mean, by the way, that, that you should be discouraged as an entrepreneur. It means that at your current stage, the returns that could come from your project is not as big as what warrants the risk for those venture capitalists. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, because that's one of the parameters that they put in their agreement with the limited partners of how are they going to approach investing this money. Mm -hmm. So as a general rule, would you say uh, that angel investing is going to be lower amounts than venture capital? Absolutely. So if we're talking, you know, in a very simplistic way, in a chronological order of how to finance your business, it usually goes bootstrapping, using your own money, um, and then friends and family, which will invest in, uh, let's say, 5000 10000 here or there. It depends on uh, your project and your uh, community of friends and families yeah. around you. Then after that, you start approaching angel investors. You don't go directly to venture capitalists. I mean, none of these rules are, are rigid rules, but mm -hmm. it's most likely that's what happens. And the reason for that is at that time, the return that could happen from your company uh, is not as big as what some venture capitalists might want to be involved in. Now, there's a lot of what we call uh, seed stage venture capitalists right now, and they are playing in the same... Uh, area where angel investors are. But if you need 500 to a million dollars, for example, then you do not approach a venture capitalist or a venture capital firm with that, with that request. This is an area for an angel investor. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that a lot of people that are interested in this type of stuff probably watch the show Shark Tank on ABC and they see people yes. pitching their ideas and you have the investors with those with the sharks on there are those considered angel investors or is that venture capital like where do they fall within this gamut wow that's really good because i watched that show too it's entertaining <laughs> uh-huh um so these people usually they are in their introduction or definition they are venture capitalists in their own life but they're acting here as um I don't know where the the money. I think I think the money that they're investing is actually money coming from ABC. They now in the intro uh, it says their own money, so I'm not sure. So th that's what they say in the uh -huh. show. But I read uh, that is not I exactly that. This is like, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's actually uh, they have that, or maybe you can look at it as as that's their salary for doing the show, and they they're free to use it for. Um, for um, investing. That's a good but way to get around it. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had that article, you know, with me, but uh, I, I do remember it, it was kind of um, talking about the statistics of investing and uh, since the show started, how many companies did they invest in and, and so forth. So it was interesting to me to read it because, as I said, I, I follow the show. Yeah, I'll try to but, find it and put uh, it in the show notes for anybody listening here, too. And if I do, certainly I will pass it on. Thank you. Uh, but, yeah. So even, let's say that um, I'm going to go back to uh, a startup company that approached a venture capitalist to, um, to, to, to pitch to them. 
So usually you have a partner, you have a person that you're going to go to and uh, build the relationship with them in firm, in venture capital firm XYZ. And then he will say, okay, you know what, you can come and pitch to me and my partners. So the relationship starts with that one person. You can think of that as, okay, that's those shark tanks that are sitting in, uh, in the room. But usually you don't pitch to multiple venture capitalist firms at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so, so they are not actually, you know, collectively investing from one pool of money. Uh, but in real life, in real life, and, and I think that's what most people would like to know is you start building a relationship with a partner in a venture capital firm. Uh, and he would be the one that would bring you in and say, okay, hey, other partners, this is a potential investment that I think agrees with our um, um, prospectus. Mm-hmm. And that's how it goes. Um, you can look at a chalk tank as, okay, they are not angels, but they are representatives of uh, venture capitals all put together in the same room. Interesting. So, yeah, a situation that would never exist in real life. No, I unless, <laughs> see, even if, if you have two venture capital companies uh, investing in you at the same time, usually it's you have one that is leading and the other one that comes along uh, as a co, co-investor in the, in the round. Mm-hmm. So what kind of a financial situation are investors looking for? Or uh, a better question, a lot of times investors will say, well, I'm investing in you because I like you, not necessarily like I believe in you. At what point is it more the entrepreneur and being invested in the entrepreneur or the financials if it's like an early company and an angel investor? Okay, so almost always... Every investor, whether an angel or a VC, uh, would prefer or put more weight on the entrepreneur themselves rather than on uh, on the idea uh, at first. So, it w- first of all, you attract somebody with 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 a good idea, but when when then the investors are making their they're weighing everything in. It's almost always, and that's what they always say, that they look at the person that they will be investing in. And a very good example of that is, you know, a couple of months after you're working in a project, it might not look the same as what you started. Ideas morph and change and and advance. Twitter, I always give this example that when Twitter started, it wasn't really the Twitter that we know today. But the investors saw potential in the people who are actually working with this. So if you have a team that is not smart enough, not strong enough, not adaptable enough, then with the first curve, and believe me, there's a lot of them in the road uh, of establishing your startup, they're just going to crumble. And that's why a lot of investors use the famous saying, we bet on the jockey, not the horse. Mm -hmm. So this is, but I also want to say that the size of the market is actually very important for, for investors because they're doing this professionally. Yes, an angel might be doing this or your friends and family might be giving you money because they believe in you or they want to help you or any other. But for a venture, that's a business for them. They need to be able to, uh, guarantee, not guarantee, but you know, assess that this investor, this investment will return a certain percentage on on the money. 
And that's why the size of the market is very, very important. If you have a smaller size market that I always say, do not go approach a venture capitalist at the time. He will not invest in you and not because of anything wrong with you, but it's just not their area. Mm-hmm. So the size of the market is is a very important factor in determining is this idea investable or not. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, what they might not realize is that investors and venture capital firms usually will have some sort of formula or a spreadsheet where they have all of the companies they've invested in, what those returns have been, what those market capsule have been, and they'll kind of plug your idea, your startup into that formula and kind of get the a percentage risk of what you'll be and if it's if it looks like your risk is low then that's really what makes them or will be a big determining factor in them investing in you i don't know if it's as cut and dry as having a formula but you said something very right and very important is that you're also compared to other uh, companies in their portfolio or other companies that we actually have seen and believe me we see a lot um Usually, if you look at a fund for a venture capital that invested in, um, in, in over, let's say, the, the last three, five years or the life of the fund, let's say, um, you'll see that most of the companies, they returned low percent, low, low return with a low return and some are mid return. And then you have one or two that actually took off and, and they will make up for the rest of the, of the, rest of the companies in, that, in the portfolio. But when an investor is looking to invest in one of these companies, he always almost have to understand or take into account that this company has the potential to be the one or two companies that are hitting it off. Mm-hmm. So that is, the, that is the criteria, is that does it have the potential to be a hit or not? If it doesn't like, and something, something having a potential doesn't mean that it will, but you know, that question I think is always as, does it have the potential to be a big hit? And if it does, then that is a company that they should look at. Mm-hmm. Now I know a lot of times or almost every time on Shark Tank, the, it, the person that's doing the pitch will start off the pitch by saying how much they're looking for and what percent of the company they're looking to give up. And what that allows the sharks to calculate is how much money they believe that their venture is worth. How is this number calculated? Like, how do these companies come up with this number? Because sometimes the sharks have no problem with it. Sometimes they say it's far off. How do you calculate your value? I would say more than than enough, they say, they have a problem with the valuation. So this is what we call the valuation of a company. And you're absolutely right. It's a way that and the entrepreneur say, okay, my company is worth X, X million dollars or $1 million, for example. Okay, and I'm giving you 25% of the company. So depending on how much he's asking, you know, at that time, if you're giving a million dollars, giving 25%, that's $250,000. I'm using a very simplistic example. Mm -hmm. Um, Most entrepreneurs, whether on Shark Tank or on the outside world, they valuing, like valuating a company, a startup company is really not an easy thing to do. It's It's very easy when you do it for a company that has revenues coming in. There are multiple ways that you can value your company. 
uh, one of them and the easiest would be like comparable. The companies like me with the same size as me uh, have the potential how much are they worth, whether they are in the private or in the public domain. Of course, in the, in the private, it's very difficult because the, the data is not readily available, unlike when it's a public company and then you, you know. Uh, also, you can look at it from what we call a multiple. And now we are digging into the boring finance part that most of my clients don't like, uh, but that's why I'm here. Uh-huh. <laughs> the other... The other one is multiple, and whether it's a multiple of revenues generated or multiple of what we like to use more, which is the net profit or EBITDA. Um, what does that mean is, okay, in five years, I think that my company is going to be making, and not I think, according to the financial projections that we have, that's going to be making $100 million. Okay, great. How do we value the company? Well. Companies that are making $100 million in this particular industry are valued at a 3x, which means three times that amount that they're generating. Mm -hmm. So look also, like sometimes investors, not sometimes, investors always know that in this particular industry, you know, the multiple is three or five or two or 10 or whatever it is. And they use that to approximate a valuation for for a company. The best way to value a company, of course, is based on the money that it generates. You know, you're in business for five years, you know that you're bringing in, you know, that amount of money each year, then that is the intrinsic value of your of your company. But the problem with startups is you don't have that number. You have a very fancy looking, very complicated financial projection that is reading into a crystal ball, of course, it has to be based on assumptions. And you go and say, okay, I think I will be making $100 million in five years, or I believe I will be making $100 million in five years. And uh, companies in my industry are going for 5x or 5 multiple, then I want my company to be at a $500 million valuation. Mm -hmm. Now, who's to say that the numbers that you use to generate this $100 million at the end are correct or are going to happen or the environment around you is going to allow you to do this? Maybe you will do more, maybe you'll do less. That's why when a lot of entrepreneurs dwell too much on the projections, I use something that David Rose once said in, in, we were screening some companies for an incubator, and he said, I know these numbers are wrong, you know these numbers are wrong. And so my, my clients always ask me, so why do we do it? I'm like, because it's the discipline. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, it, it's always like that. I always say, I know these numbers are wrong, you know they're wrong, and the investors know that they are wrong. Mm-hmm. So why do we have to absolutely go through that exercise? As I said, one is because the discipline. The second is what matters more than the numbers and the nice looking hockey stick is actually the assumptions that you use in order to generate these numbers. Mm-hmm. So investors usually would ask, they don't care. You know, they never ask, oh, okay, tell me how much revenue and cost. Of course, they want to know that. But what they want to know more importantly is, what are the assumptions that you use in order to generate, to generate that money? So they ask about things, okay, how many customers did you um, assume you will get in the first year? What's the conversion rate that you used in order to determine how many will actually uh, stay with you and pay you money for it? And other, other assumptions like that, that if these assumptions are sound, 
that I, I don't say, oh, I think I'm going to have a 50% conversion rate in an area where the norm or the average has been 7%. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, that is you a know? fantastic point because the value of your company is more important at showing how you think rather than what you actually think the value of your company is because the value of your company, it, it's a journey to get to that number and it's that journey that provides the insights that the investors are interested in. Exactly, and mm -hmm. there are weak points in your company and the investors will help you overcome these weak, these weak points, but they want to know how are you thinking. Entrepreneurs have to, they have to be, in order to succeed, optimistic. Mm -hmm. And they have to believe that they will succeed and they can overcome any obstacle. Otherwise, I don't know if, if, if we can call them an entrepreneur and they don't have that quality. Yeah. But the problem is that quality sometimes hinders the ability of the entrepreneur to ground themselves in reality. <laughs> and this yeah. is, yes, this is the mix. This is the balance really that makes a successful entrepreneur. You have to dream. You have to be optimistic. You, you have to be outward looking, but you have to ground yourself in reality. And that comes from these kind of assumptions, these kind of um, you know, sitting down and actually looking at how things are going to go, whether it's the financials or your your business model or so forth. That's that's very important part. So, keeping along the lines of valuing your company, how much equity should you expect to be giving up, or should you be looking to give up for, when taking on uh, investors? Uh, the question of the ages. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you need. The equity that you should give up is the least equity you could give up and still guarantee that your company will grow. Um, so if we look at the two extreme points of that, somebody say, I will never give equity to anybody. I want to have 100% of my company. Well, will that guarantee that person to actually grow the business from what it is right now to a $100 million business? If no, then he got 100% of nothing. Mm -hmm. And that's really not good. Look at the other person that actually gives a big chunk of his company. But Mike Zuckerberg is always, you know, the one that um, I use for that example. Because when, when Facebook IPO'd, he, Mark, did I say Mike? No, you said Mark. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. Yeah, good. Mark Zuckerberg actually had, I think, around 25% of the company. Mm -hmm. Yet, he ended up with a lot of money. So it's not necessarily, you know, keeping all the equities, what's going to make you rich or giving up the control of your company is what's going to make it or break it. But it's a good balance in between. So I always say you give the maximum you could give with, that guarantee your company will grow. And I have to say that investors are smarter in this point than the entrepreneurs because um, entrepreneurs, sometimes they don't look at it from the right angle, as I said, they look at it from these two polar points. Uh, but investors, the smart investors, they actually are not the ones that come in and take a majority or a lot of equity in your company, especially if you're an angel investor, an early, early investor. You want to take as little equity as your prospectus will dictate in order to guarantee for you the return that you want. But allow the entrepreneur, even after a second round of investment comes in, that they maintain a majority of the company. And why is that important? Because think about it this way. If I'm an entrepreneur and I went and I gave 51% of my company to the first investor I met, 
and it happens on Shark Tank a lot, <laughs> uh, then I'm currently working for someone else. You lose that sense of, oh, this is my company and, and I need to work as hard as possible in order to make it grow. So if smart investors leave that incentive for the entrepreneurs, um, I'm actually, and this is this part we didn't talk about, but yeah. I'm heavily involved in startups and the whole ecosystem in Egypt. That's where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And we're currently having a big problem because this whole startup entrepreneurship is a new thing that flourished after the 2011 revolution. Yeah. We're having this big problem that investors come in and they take a big chunk of as the startup, leaving the entrepreneur with so little that two things happen, two deteriorating factors here. One, the entrepreneur doesn't feel anymore that they're working for like for themselves or for their for their own idea. They're working for quote unquote the man. And second and most importantly, it creates what we call round A crunch. Because any other investor that will come in after that, again, they're left with so little of the company that it cannot guarantee success for them. So this is a learning curve that they have to do over there, you know, to learn. Um, that this is not the right way to do things. But investors here, they're smart. And they don't allow this to happen because in order for a round A investor to succeed, he needs a, a round B investor, okay? And if the following investor came in and found that, you know, the terms are not favorable, the remaining piece of the pie is not going to guarantee him to grow. He's not going to invest. So this, what I call is aligns actually the interest of the entrepreneur with the investor, with the smart investor that does that. Mm -hmm. uh, but most, let me just be a little bit realistic. Uh, most of the angel groups, when you go and, uh, and pitch to them, they have a range. They have a range that for X amount of money, we're going to take X amount of equity in your company because we believe in your stage, you know, your company is worth such and such. And it doesn't really move far from these boundaries. Um, unless, of course, you have a very unique product, very unique idea, and it might warrant some changes to, to, the, to these norms. Yeah. I know, like, at Y Combinator and with Paul Graham, with their uh, investments, it's always the exact same amount of money, and they take the exact same amount of percentage of the company just for all of their investments across the board. That way they don't have to worry about any of that kind of stuff. And the program itself exactly. is where the startups will find the value. Because that's really sometimes also entrepreneurs really dwell a lot over the value of their company at the beginning when they're seeking seed or around a investment. And it's not the right way to think about it. One of the, one of the things that I also tell my clients and sometimes when I teach um, in every, the term sheet, have you ever heard that uh, an entrepreneur worry about anything in the term sheet more than the valuation? I've never heard that. Mm -hmm. But there are items and, and articles in a term sheet that is, a term sheet is divided into two, like the money part and the control part. And most entrepreneurs worry and dwell over the money part way more than they do over the other control part, which actually is not smart at all because if you don't have enough control in your in your company and i don't mean that by having the majority of stock but voting rights uh, other rights that come in in the term sheets and people don't like you know they think it's very complicated to look at you could find yourself kicked out of your own company mm. so 
smart entrepreneurs actually balance between the control and the money aspect of their company. What if the valuation was a little bit less than what they thought, but they, you know, they got the right investor with the right connection that will, you know, guarantee that they will grow bigger. This issue, the valuation issue after you grow doesn't seem as important as, for example, control issue. Who makes the decision? Do I still get to make the decision? Do I still have enough voting um, um, rights in the boardroom in order to make my, my decision about the company and where it's going to go? Or I relinquish that for the sake of having a bigger valuation? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's a question that they need to ask themselves more often than they do. Yeah. So kind of going back to the beginning, if you are, you have a business and you're thinking that you're about ready to look at some sort of investment or that that's where you're headed and that's what you think you need, where do you go to find investors? Like how do you find people to pitch? Um, actually, the, the best scenario that doesn't happen to uh, the majority of people is that you know, you will be known enough that investors will actually know about you before you even go and start to pitch to them. But, you know, that's a utopia that doesn't happen to the majority of, um, of the entrepreneurs. And by that, I mean, if you have a really, really good product, a unique and good product and an idea from the beginning, then Raising money is going to be, of course, much easier than if you're still trying to forge your way uh, and develop the idea and get it noticed and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, In New York here, uh, we have a lot and a lot of events that take place where either investors go themselves or we actually send, you know, younger associates to scout the market for what's what other ideas are available. Um, you have a lot of competitions that take place, uh, whether it's hackathons or business plan competitions, or even you know nights where you just pay some money to uh, uh, to pitch your idea in front of a group of investors. And I, I really want to take that back because I don't want to confuse it with the investors who say, "Oh, if you want to pitch." To me, you have to pay me money. That is wrong. Mm-hmm. But I'm talking about ultra ultra light startup, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay, where where you know they have a monthly event where you can go and pitch um, uh, in, in front of a group of professionals, as even even as a practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not as difficult. The whole finding an investor, it's not as difficult as it used to be. In the old days. Venture capitalists and investors were uh, running in a very different way than they are right now. They were, it's a supply and demand. So it was like, oh, we're very well known and the entrepreneur should come and find us. And you'd be lucky if you get uh, an email address, if you could find an email address of an investor. Right now, investors, and I want to say especially angel investors, for example, they are out there letting themselves be known we're looking for investors, and and they look at it at outwardly more than inwardly, like before. And that's a shift that happened in the industry. I was reading uh, Brian Cohen's book maybe a week or two ago, um, and that's exactly what he said there. He said hmm. on the websites for uh, for any uh, investor, whether it's angel or venture capital, you have the name of the people, and 
you would know what events they go to and you have them on Twitter and you could communicate with them or blogs or you could communicate with them and establish a relationship with them that in the end when you're going to, when you finally see them and you want to pitch your idea, it's not like a completely first time out of the blue thing. Mm -hmm. So the entrepreneur just need to be very proactive in, in, in terms of finding the right, I'm going to underline that, uh, investor for his venture. But currently, I mean, we have blogs written by, uh, by investors all the time, and they really allow you to go in and, and interact with them. They are very active on Twitter, um, and, and they're all about in those events that, you know, that are being held in, in wherever you are, whether it's New York or any other part of, of, of the States right now. Mm -hmm. So it's not as hard to find them as some people might think. No, not at all. I would not say that. Yeah, especially here in New York, I found a lot of different events on meetup.com. I'm not sure if it's, I know that they, meetup exists in other States, but I haven't actually looked there to make sure that they have events like this. But here in New York, you go to meetup.com and there are so many opportunities for entrepreneurs and uh, potential investors. Exactly. And sometimes it's overwhelming to tell you the truth, yeah. but it's there. So you need to weed the good from the bad. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I wanted to say thank you very much for being on the show. I think this was really, really enlightening. Um, I'm glad you found it helpful. Uh, and I hope others will do too. It was my pleasure really to be on your show and congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, if any of my listeners or readers want to find you, how can they find you? So they can go to Talim Advisory, T-A-L-E-M advisory.com. And that's, that's my business website. You can find um, all the information, how to contact me over there. Uh, I'm also big believer on LinkedIn and I'm on LinkedIn as Inas Ibrahim. Awesome. And I'll put those all in the show notes and thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. Phew, that was a lot to take in, but also really, really valuable information. I want to thank my guest Inas for being on the show. And if you've enjoyed this, please go onto iTunes, leave me a rating, leave me a review. I really appreciate it. And until next week, have a good one.